So we're uh, cruising along on our You Asked For It series, and um, two weeks ago, you remember, it was the blind squirrel sermon, uh, Truth in the World and How We Find It, and that it all comes from God last week on scripture and gender identity or sexuality. Uh, this week, we're looking at uh, war, suffering, and evil. And uh, so I'm not sure who sent me this one, but uh, thanks a lot. Uh, <laughs> let me just open up in a word of prayer before we begin. Father God, we give you thanks this morning that we can look into your word. And as we come to you with this uh, really profound challenge, one of the hardest ones, in fact, uh, to our defense, for lack of a better word, of the Christian faith. Not that you need any defending, Lord, but it is hard for us to comprehend uh, the purpose behind suffering. And so, Lord, as we look into your word, we just pray that we would have a clarity of mind and that you would reveal to each of us personally what your purpose is in the suffering globally in the world and the suffering that we experience in our own personal lives. Father, because we know without a doubt that you are loving. We know without a doubt that you are trustworthy. We know without a doubt that you have a purpose and are sovereign over everything. And so it's us, Lord, who need to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the wisdom of your word and the leading of your Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just looking at the this issue of suffering, I was looking up a few statistics on things, and I was looking at war, and uh, there's a lot of different statistics you could go into in terms of war, in terms of the conflicts that are going on right now, as was mentioned, the, the plane that was just shot down, the number of people that are injured by just leftover landmines from wars that are done, the current casualties in wars, the things that are going on in the world. But I, I picked up just on children um, currently serving as soldiers, Two hundred to 300,000 children right now are currently soldiers in either rebel or government forces uh, around the world. So just get that through your head and all of the implications of, of children involved with warfare, let alone warfare and all the effects of, of warfare aside from that. Or you look at disaster around the world. Um, I was, again, looking for some numbers on this. 21,000 people die of starvation every day. 21,000 people. On Boxing Day of 2004, you remember the tsunami in the Indian Ocean killed 300,000 people in 12 hours. And so we have these wars, we have these ongoing disasters of, of political and other disasters in terms of the starvation. You have natural disasters like the tsunami in the Indian Ocean. And on average, if you, if you look at the annual average of disaster victims over the last 10 years, there's about 268 million people per year that are affected by disasters. And by affected, that is, they've lost their job, they've lost their house, they've lost their property, they've lost family members, uh, basically been displaced, they're living in refugee camps. 268 million people every year. That's pretty pretty close to the population of the United States of America, every single year getting wiped out by disaster. And then you look at sickness. 
There's about 9 to 11, forget about incurable disease, there's 9 to 11 million people die every year from preventable diseases. And those are the ones that we can prevent, let alone all the diseases and illness and things that affect us uh, in terms of uh, cancer and things that are incurable um, and that essentially assail our bodies on a regular basis. And these numbers that I threw up here, there's a lot of big numbers there, and those numbers don't even touch on the sort of day-to-day suffering that people go through of bankruptcy and losing houses and uh, violent attacks and robberies and bullying in the schoolyard and and just everything else that goes on in a typical life. I mean, that's just sort of starting at the top at the global level and working down. We can see, and, and sort of the point of all of that is to say that we can't deny suffering. Suffering is common. Suffering is a reality of, of the human experience, and it's the reality of the Christian experience. And so the question that we run into, and I think the question that was sort of behind the little piece of paper that I got, a couple of them actually, on this issue was the common question that's asked. If God is all-loving, and if God is all-powerful, then he could end pointless suffering. So then it seems to follow that God either doesn't care or he isn't all-powerful, or he doesn't exist, ignoring some other alternatives. So that's the challenge before us, and that's the challenge that uh, sort of theologians and Christians have wrestled with down through the ages in terms of how do we reconcile a loving, all-powerful God with the suffering that we see in the world. But there's a sort of an assumption wrapped up in that question. And so I'd ask the question, is all suffering pointless? Is any suffering pointless? And how is God perhaps using suffering? And is it true that God then doesn't care about our suffering? And so those are the questions that we're going to look at. And I'll tell you right off the top that there are sort of two different, well, there's more than two, there's a few different directions you could go at this. And sometimes we're forced to the question of of this suffering issue out of our own personal intense suffering. And at that In any conversation here, we need to be at our most compassionate in these circumstances where people are going through suffering, we're going through personal suffering. Other times we're asking this question maybe out of curiosity or it's like a theological question, like, you know, when we get to heaven and we have our new bodies, will we be able to fly? I mean, that's a nice discussion. And uh, I shouldn't have said that because now you're going to be thinking about flying. But... uh, So sometimes we approach this question sort of intellectually, but other times we approach it personally because it's happening to us. You see what I'm saying? And so you can't approach the topic of suffering without compassion. And in addition to that, though, but at the underneath the compassion and underneath the reality that God loves us and God wants to heal us and God wants to redeem us and that he has purpose in his, in, in his suffering and that we need to approach this on a personal and compassionate level, to to root ourselves in where I'm coming from, and maybe this is me personally, but to root myself on this question, I have to go even a step deeper than the compassion, which is to find a clear answer to suffering that isn't guided just by our emotional response to suffering. That the conversation about suffering and evil requires compassion, yes, but just sort of clear-eyed insight into the nature of God through Scripture. So that when we're talking about suffering and we're talking about the hurt and the evil and the sin that people are going through, we're basing that on what God says about himself and about what we learn from Scripture and not just an emotive response. So I I say that to apologize because this is not necessarily going to be the most 
emotionally compelling sermon this morning. It's going to be very scriptural. It's going to be very based on what God reveals about himself. And it's going to be a little bit analytical. And, uh, and if you want compassion, and then go see Lindsay, cause she, uh, <laughs> cause she has the, she has the, the, the heart behind this on the compassion side. And we need both. We need both. That's all I'm saying. Is that we approach this with compassion, but we also, also approach it to understand what God says about himself. So what does God say then? As we come to this question of evil and suffering, what does he say? Even Is suffering pointless? And God actually says a lot about suffering when you go through the Bible. He has a lot to say. And in sort of lay the, the groundwork in Genesis 3.17, we have, we have where it all sort of comes from. There's a big link between Genesis 3.17 and Romans 8.20-22. 20 and in, in Genesis 3.17, with the fall of mankind and our sin and our turning away from God and wanting to lift ourselves up, and put ourselves in God's stead and say that we're wiser than God, God basically cursed Satan, cursed the serpent. God cursed creation, and he subjected it to futility. It says in Romans 8.22, Paul expands on this curse in Genesis that God put on the earth. It says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That was God who did it. It wasn't Satan, it was God. Satan doesn't have that power. He subjected it in hope. Those two words are important. That creation was subjected in hope to futility. That creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the paths, in the pains of childbirth until now. And so that we have at the very beginning of the Bible this explanation of where the weeds and the thorns and the war and the and the natural disaster and the and the and the brokenness of the world. God subjected the world to futility that it would eventually be set free. That God's curse was not pointless. That there was a point behind the curse. It was not done in a fit of anger. It was not done because God was upset with us. The word was the world was not broken without a purpose in mind. That God had a plan in his breaking of the world or this cursing of the world. And the analogy it's sort of inadequate, but the analogy that I would I would use is like a doctor who might break a crooked leg in order that that crooked leg can heal straight. And so when mankind sinned, when we fell away from God, God subjected to creation to futility. He broke creation in a way that the brokenness of the world would participate in and become an active part in the redemption of mankind. And then through the redemption of mankind, our salvation, would then the creation actually then follow us in redemption. So in a big sort of theological picture, top down, understand what Genesis and Romans is saying. That God cursed the world, he broke the world, but he did it for a reason. He he broke the world in order that it might be redeemed. In order that it might participate in the redemption of mankind and that in our redemption, that the, and all of creation would follow in that redemption. You notice that in Romans 8.22. It's, it's a small point, but it's worth noticing that he subjected creation in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's creation that's waiting for our redemption so that creation can be carried along in our redemption. It's not the other way around. God is not remaking the world and then we get sort of remade along with this perfect world that God is remaking. God is remaking a perfect people and then he's going to carry creation along in that redemption. It's a small point, but it's important. And so the suffering that arises from a broken world is not pointless. Just because 
a large portion of mankind doesn't see the point. And in fact, a large portion of man rejects the point of suffering. It doesn't mean that it is pointless. It just means that they don't see it. And we can expect that, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We expect that for the most part, people will be blind to what God is doing. But until that time comes that we live in a world that is both broken by the curse and also a world where mankind sins in Romans 1, the results of our foolishness, and and Satan has a little bit of a leash to run, but only as far as God allows him to. So right now we live in that time of brokenness. We live in that time of healing that's supposed to be taking place. And we live in a time when, when Satan has this leash to run a little bit. But only just as far as God allows him to run. And so we continue on and we look in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, God gives us a unique revelation of the nature of God's control over suffering and, and how he uses suffering to his purpose. Because if, if you say, Paul, that, that there is a plan in Genesis and Paul illuminates the plan in Romans 8 and you say that God is using suffering, then, then, then how is he using it? And the book of Job is awesome because in the book of Job, God sort of peels back the curtain for us and he gives us a glimpse into what is going on that we cannot comprehend. And so Job is really, really important. And we see that Job has suffered through three big, apparently unjust sufferings. Somehow I've completely lost my Job scripture. But I have it up there, so that's good. Hit Job. <laughs> Here's Job chapter... Job's a big book, but we're just going to look at the first few, few verses here. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan, and Satan answered the Lord, saying, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, and he stays away from evil. And Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but do not harm him physically. And so Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides, and the house collapsed, and all your children are dead, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. And then he shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Excuse me. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. So in this text, we have this really interesting glimpse into what is going on. In Job, we see that he has suffered through the big three calamities, apparently unjust suffering. 
war, the raiders attacking, natural disaster, the tornado that kills his children, and, and sickness. We won't go there in the text for time, but later on we learn that God eventually gives Satan a little more leash and he tells Satan that he can strike Job's flesh and make him sick. He can just not kill him. He can do anything short of killing him. And so Job, with his oozing sores and his mental anguish, basically leaves him in rags and we find Job sitting in a pile of dirt, uh, covered in ashes and scraping away at his oozing sores with a broken pot. And so, and his wife is nagging him at the same time. So... Job knows suffering. (laughs) But if we were to continue on through the book of Job and through all of Scripture, how would the Bible shape our our view of suffering? And and what would this peeling back of the curtain that, that God has done here for us in Job reveal? So first thing, quickly, suffering is not a... First thing we have to get straight is suffering is not a punishment for sin. Okay? In Job, you see that God reveals that Job was blameless and upright, and he was righteous. Job was not being punished because of his sin. Okay, What happened to Job was not a response to his, to, to his behavior. And in fact, in Romans 8, this, the other text, we see as Paul illuminates what's going on in the, in the corruption and the curse of the world, that what is happening and the groaning that is going on in the world and all of the, the things that are taking place because of the curse are not a result of our personal sin. You know, you remember in Job 42, sorry, you remember that Job's friends eventually show up after a while and, and his friends are sitting quietly with him for seven days. For seven days, they don't see, say anything at all to Job, which is about the smartest thing they could have done in that situation. But then Eliphaz opens his mouth and he says that Job must have sinned somehow. And, and he goes on about how righteous people don't suffer. And he, and he goes on for chapters about Job's apparent failure. And, and Job denies it the whole time. He says, no, I was upright. I was blameless. I didn't curse God. You know, this is happening, but it's not because of that. And then when God finally speaks near the end in Job 42, at the end of chapter 42, he says right off, I'm angry at you, Eliphaz, and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me of what is right as my servant Job has. So God comes and defends him and says it wasn't because Job sinned. And Paul says the whole world is under a curse. These things happen. You get cancer. You know, you're suffering in some way. It's not because of your sin. Keep this in mind. Jesus Christ paid for our sin on the cross. God cannot punish us again for what Christ has already completed. It's done. So don't think that your cancer or you know your, your child dying in a car accident or anything like that is somehow a response to your sin or something you have done in your life. And I, and I hate this. This is why I want to say this right off the top. Because the thing that I hate the most is when I, I hear somebody saying, and maybe they mean well, I don't know, but they say that people are sick or when they're not healed or when something bad happens and God's not taking them out of that circumstance, they say that their faith is somehow lacking or that they have done something wrong in their life and if they fixed what was wrong in their life or if they just had more faith, then the cancer would be cured or something like that. And that's just an outright lie. It is not true that the sickness and the disaster and the suffering that falls upon us is not connected to our sin and not necessarily to our faith that there is a corruption in the world and things are taking place that are beyond our understanding in terms of suffering. And so we need to be set free from that lie. And Jesus says the same things. When the people of Jerusalem are asking Jesus about the reason for sudden tragedies in their life, there is this situation in Luke chapter 13 that they're talking about. There were many Jews who were pleading with Pilate to... to uh, you'd have to go into the details, but 
But the Jews were pleading with Pilate to make changes, and Pilate uh, was threatened by these Jewish people. And it's, it's just one sentence, it's one verse in Luke 13 there, where it talks about how Pilate killed all these Jews and mingled their blood with the sacrifices of the Romans. And the Jews were, and they were asking Jesus, what about this, this massacre that took place? And then in the next verse, Jesus refers to them and he says, you know, they, they weren't any greater sinners than any other Galileans. And then he refers to the tower of Siloam that fell. And they were building this tower in Jerusalem and it fell down and 18 workers were killed in this tower that fell down. And, and he says, were they sinners? Were they any worse than anybody else? Do you think that they are worse sinners than anyone else because they suffered that way? No, they were not any different. But you should repent yourselves or risk your own spiritual death. And so Jesus says these things happen. It's not because they're sinners. And so we need to put away that lie. It's suffering in our world is not a punishment for sin. Or when the disciples ask about the man born blind in John 9, 2 to 3, Right? They ask Jesus the question. They say, here's this man who's born blind. Who sinned? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? Who's the sinner? And Jesus says it wasn't because of any sin that he was born blind. He was born blind so that he could reveal the glory of God. Not because of his sin. So the first thing is suffering is not a punishment for sin. Secondly, suffering is used for God's glory. Job didn't know what was going on in heaven while he was suffering on earth. And God pulls back that curtain. But at the time, Job didn't know that God was redeeming the suffering of Job and his faithfulness in order to bring glory to himself and shame upon Satan. So there's this whole backstory going on behind suffering that Job is completely unaware of. And he knows it's not about his sin. He got that right. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know the picture of what's going on. We have that revealed to us. But he doesn't know what's going on in the courts of God. And so this is one of the most incredible mysteries of suffering that we don't fully comprehend. That God is redeeming the worst things that happen to us and the worst things that we do to each other. And he is working all of those things to his ultimate glory and, and Satan's shame and Satan's defeat. In Ephesians 3.10, he says that it's through us that he puts on display the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So through us... And through everything that we're going through, God is basically putting on a show and saying, look at how amazing I am to all the angels and all the demons and to Satan. And they don't understand it, but God is using, and we don't understand it, but God is using these circumstances just like he did with Job to say, okay, Satan, you want to see something? I'll give you some leash. Go after my servant. Make him suffer. See whether he curses me. And God knows because he has Job in his hand that Job's not going to deny God. He knows that that through suffering, Job only leans deeper into God. That Job only leans farther into his Lord. And that as Christians, when, when we suffer, it's opportunity for us to lean farther into the love of God. That it's opportunity for us to say to Satan and to sin and to evil and say, you can do these things to me, but it just leans me closer to God because of his love and his mercy to me. And so when Jesus is teaching and he's questioned by the Pharisees about his status as the Son of God, Jesus puts God on display through the suffering of a paralytic. Just lots of different ways God puts suffering on display. In Mark 2, you remember, he's teaching and they, they challenge him in his, his statement that he can, he can forgive sin. And he says in Mark chapter 2, but, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went before them all. And here's the clincher so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So you could be the paralytic, and you could be saying, why was I born this way, or why did this accident happen so that I'm paralyzed, and why do I live this miserable life, and, and why has this happened to me, and I don't understand why God would do this to me. 
And then you're there before Jesus and Jesus heals you and God's glory is revealed and you finally have the aha moment. That's why it happened. So that I could bring glory to God through the redemption of my suffering. Sometimes God is glorified in healing and sometimes it's in our faithful suffering through the healing. I don't know what it is to be paralyzed. And so I can't speak to that, but many of you know Joni Erickson. Uh, Joni was paralyzed from the neck down almost her whole life now. She, it was as a teenager that she was paralyzed. And so she can speak to paralysis. And this is what Joni says of her paralysis, which wasn't healed. The truth of the matter is, Satan and God may want the exact same event to take place, but for different reasons. Satan's motive in Jesus' crucifixion was rebellion. God's motive was love and mercy. Satan was a secondary cause behind the crucifixion, but it was God who has ultimately wanted it and willed it and allowed Satan to carry it out. And the same holds true for my suffering. So we need to remember here that God is using suffering, that God is using the attacks on us, and he is using the pain that we go through in a way that we can't understand. That is God's hand behind it and that he is sovereign. That God is redeeming suffering with glory. He redeemed the suffering of Job with his glory. He redeemed the man born blind with his glory. He redeemed the life of a paralytic. Ultimately, eventually, he redeemed the suffering of his own son on the cross for his glory and our redemption. And so if you look at Scripture, and you know that Scripture cannot be broken, then you see that what God teaches us about suffering goes far deeper than what we experience when we think about what happens in our life. And we ask questions, just like Job asked questions, but that doesn't mean that there's not answers. God has answers to how he uses suffering. Thirdly, God uses suffering to draw people to himself. C.S. Lewis says, pain is a megaphone for a deaf world. (laughs) And that's a reality too. That is, God cursed creation and futility. Part of the curse was to draw people to himself. That we have the example of the people of Israel who were always wandering away from God. You know, God would set them up in a good situation and they would have their sacrifices and they'd have their food and there would be rain and there would be everything going on. And then what would happen with the people of Israel? They would start to wander away from God. And then when did they come back to God? When was it? Oh yeah, it's when they were attacked by a foreign nation or when there was a drought or when there was a famine. And then all of a sudden the nation of Israel would suddenly remember, oh yes, God, need to come back and talk to you again. And so he would draw the people of Israel back to him through their suffering. And then they would be all set up with lots of grain and lots of land and lots of peace and then they would drift away again and then they would begin to suffer and they would turn right back to God. As the old saying says, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? And so one of the things that God uses, as C.S. Lewis says, pain is a megaphone for a deaf world. That, that God uses suffering to draw people to himself. People today, God has used every kind of suffering to draw people to himself. You look at the testimonies Uh, that you have heard through your life or that people have stood up on stage and given. You know, whether it's gang members or drug addicts or bank robbers or even sweet old ladies. You know, God has used knife wounds and God has used overdoses and God has used car accidents and God has used jail time and God has used family tragedy. God has used suffering of every type in people's lives to draw them to Him because God knows that their life with Him in suffering is far superior to a happy life absent from God and going to hell. And so God uses suffering to draw people to himself. It's part of the redemption. Again, going back to Joni, I was looking through a few of her quotes and a couple of them struck me. Joni says, He has not chosen to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. 
And so that's what God wants from us as we suffer. He wants us to lean into Him, to be held by Him. Fourthly, God uses suffering for training and transforming. This is the one we most often go to in our heads. We think we know the answer, and this is one of the ones we go to in addition to the other three. Job again, going back to Job. Job was righteous and blameless as a follower of God, but as you keep going through all those chapters in Job, you realize that he had stuff to learn. That even though he was righteous and blameless and an upright follower and sacrificing for himself and sacrificing for his kids, you know, just in case they did something foolish while they were in one of their parties, you know, he had all the bases covered, but he still had a lot to learn. And so as Job goes through his months of suffering, he's constantly calling out for God, challenging God to come and talk with him and answer his questions and face Job's just demands. And so this righteous man is saying, God, come and face me. You know, you're punishing me unjustly and you need to come and answer to yourself. And so Job himself still had some training and transforming to do. And near the end of the book, Job gets his wish and God shows up and decides he will speak. And the first thing he says, one of my favorite lines is, Job, gird yourself like a man because I'm about to talk. Basically, Job put a jock on because things are about to get real. Cinch up, boy. I'm speaking. And when God speaks to Job, he basically lays him out. He says, here's all the stuff you don't know, Job. Here's stuff you still need to learn, right? And it sounds like in those last few chapters, which he is doing, God is basically just laying Job out and basically telling him, like, you don't get it. You need, you need to learn some stuff. And it's true, that is what he's doing. But if you keep reading deeper into what God is saying... What God is also revealing as he basically lays Job out is he's revealing his incredible care and attention to everything that is going on in creation. Not only that he's all-powerful, but that he is all-caring. And that's what Job was missing. He was missing that, that God cared more deeply than Job could understand. You look at verses like Job 38, 39 to 41, and God says to him, Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey and, the, and for its young ones when they cry out to God for help and wander about for lack of food? God is saying, Job, you don't care for creation the way I do. You're not everywhere at all times taking care and sustaining everything. You're not bringing food to the birds. You're not feeding the lions. You're not, you're not taking care of all the things that I have to take care of. Job, you cannot care for the world the way I care for the world. And so the conclusion is, do you think, Job, that I don't care about you and your situation if I can care for all of that? You're missing my compassion, Job. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Job needed training in the nature of God, not only in his glory, but also in his compassion and care. And so God uses this opportunity of suffering and what it reveals in Job's heart for him to yell out to God to come and face him. And as that's revealed in Job's heart, God comes and answers Job and trains him and teaches him. And at the end of Job, Job's answer to God is basically, though you slay me, I will trust you. So Job's satisfaction in God at the end of the book is far greater than Job's satisfaction at the beginning of the book. And so there was a purpose in the suffering, not just to put God on display for the glory, his glory before Satan, but also to train Job. And then we have Paul, the Apostle Paul, same thing in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9. We know this verse when it comes to suffering, right? To keep me from being conceited 
A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The Apostle Paul needed training in humility. And so God caused a thorn in his flesh for him to suffer so that he would be humble. Even Jesus was not spared instruction through suffering. Hebrews 5.8, another go-to verse on this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. There is a mystery to suffering in terms of how God is using it to train us to be transformed, to be more and more like his son, even the fact of suffering like his son to learn obedience. And so there will always be questions about suffering. There's a lot of questions about why we suffer. But along with the questions, will there also be faith? Will there be faith in the suffering? Now quickly, why can we trust God in suffering? Just two points. There's two reasons we can trust God in our suffering and trust God with our suffering. Whatever mystery there is that lays behind suffering, we know that suffering is necessary and we know that suffering is purposeful because of that last point. God loved us so much that he joined us in our suffering. God knew and planned before the foundation of the world that his own son would be beaten bloody and hanging on a cross and he knew he would have to turn his face away and let Jesus become sin for the sake of the world. God knew and planned that suffering before the foundation of the world. And so we can be sure that we can trust God in suffering and that suffering has a purpose because suffering is so important to God that he joined us in it, that he suffered with us. Not because of his evil, but because of our sin, he would join us in our suffering. And so the last thing that we can think about suffering is somehow that God doesn't care. That if he didn't care about suffering, then he would have just shut the doors of heaven on us and forgotten. And him and the Holy Spirit and Jesus would have had an eternity of perfection with each other. That's a God that didn't care. God cared enough about our suffering that he came and joined us in our suffering so that he could redeem us and open the doors of heaven and bring us into that eternal relationship with him. And so God can be trusted because his hand is guiding the suffering, even with his own son. It says in Hebrews 5.7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. Can you imagine the Son of God crying to his Father who can save him? And his prayers were heard because of his reverence. God listens to our suffering. He cares about our suffering. We can trust him with our suffering because secondly, God is in control. God's hand controls evil. In Job 1 and 2, we see how tightly Satan is on God's leash. And we can't forget this in suffering, that Satan is on a leash. And the surprising thing for us in the world is not how much suffering there is, it's how little suffering there is. That if God was just to leave us to our own sin and leave us with no grace at all and no general revelation and no hand of his holding back Satan, then we would be overrun by an enemy that wants to destroy us. We would be overrun with each other wanting to destroy each other. God restrains us and God restrains Satan so that we don't utterly destroy ourselves. And Job understands this when he looks past the events of the wind and the raiders and his sickness. God see, or Job sees behind all of the events and he says in Job 2.21 that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job knows that behind the suffering there's a sovereign God. That it's God that is a, his, whose hand is behind this. Our days are numbered. 
And God has chosen before the foundation of the world exactly what our days will be, how long we will live, how much we will suffer, and the day we will die. We have one death, no matter when or how it comes, and it's never a surprise to God, and it's never a mistake. And so even if we look at something like the tsunami and 300,000 people dying in one day, and we think, oh, how horrible, all these people died. It's true, they all died, and it is a horrible thing. But none of them died by mistake, and none of them were a surprise to God. Their days were numbered, and they lived exactly the life that God intended that they would live. And it seems shocking to us as humans because they all died in the same 12 hours. But you know what? Every one of those people would have died eventually. And every one of us is going to die eventually. And we can either all die together or we can all die at different times. But God has numbered those days and ordained His purpose in our lives regardless of the suffering and regardless of the death that we might face. I mean, it was Peter who was talking to Jesus, one of the last conversations that he had with Jesus. And Jesus was talking about the death that Peter would suffer. And Peter's not all that happy about the death that he's going to suffer at the hands of the Romans. And he says, yeah, but what about him? Right, pointing at John. <laughs> what about this guy over here? And Jesus says, you don't worry about him. You don't worry about him. I have a life plan for you. You glorify me in your life. And that's what we have to remember in our suffering, that God is in control. He's sovereign over every second of every day. And this is what we leave with, that evil is not a force that can overpower God. It is God that guides and restrains evil, but he's not accused of evil. God must be in control to use suffering so perfectly and so purposefully. There's no other way it could be used to be glorified and redeemed. As one writer put it as I was reading uh, couple of different sources on this. There's a writer that, that wrote this way. I understand it sounds cruel to say that God willed my infant son's death. But believing that my son died against God's will is far worse. That would mean that God is not in control, that evil can ultimately win, and that my future is uncertain. Moreover, it would mean that my son's death was random, meaningless, without purpose, as someone who has endured adversity, my greatest comfort is knowing that God is sovereign. He has ordained all of my trials, and therefore my suffering has purpose. Neither Satan nor random chance has the last word on my suffering. God has the final word. And that's what we have to remember. That scripture is consistent from Job, through the prophets, to Jesus, to Paul. Scripture is consistent in the revelation that God is in control. That God does not allow suffering without redeeming it for his purposes. I'll finish just with a story of my own dad and his suffering, excuse me, and eventual death, death with Alzheimer's. And it was, it was a teaching moment for me because my dad was a farm guy, very healthy, very active, intelligent, read a lot. And so in the final days of his life, when the Alzheimer's was really taking over and eventually claimed his life with a lot of different complications, I was wrestling with this question of, this is where it gets personal, the, the personal question, it's no longer theological, it's not how many angels dance on the head of a pin, it's why is my dad suffering? And so for me personally, as I was God was taking me through this and, and was teaching me. As I saw my mom caring for him in our home first and then going to the home that he was in 
and visiting in him day after day after day, month after month for a while. And the nurses saw that love and she fed him and talked with him and sang with him. And the nurses saw it and the other residences saw that love. My family saw that love and, and his brothers and sisters saw that love. And, and the whole family was impacted by that. I realized that my dad in his suffering was still accomplishing a pur- purpose to say something about God's love through my mom's interaction with him. And God took me to this verse, Romans 14, 7 to 8. For none of us live to ourselves, or none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And that's what struck me, is that my father would live exactly to the moment that his life in suffering would bring glory to God the most. And the minute that his life would bring more glory to God in heaven, that's when God would take him. And so I know that my dad lived exactly as long as he could bring glory to God in his suffering. And when God chose that he could bring more glory to him in heaven, then he took him home. That's what Paul is saying. Whether we live or whether we die, we live and die to the glory of God. And that is a mystery and suffering that we can't really comprehend. We can only thank God for Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that this issue of suffering is not just a clever theological debate, but we need clear-eyed truth. We need clear-eyed truth of, of what your scripture says to root our understanding of suffering so that we can say this is what God says about suffering and this is what God says about his nature and, and this is what I know suffering accomplishes. We need that, Lord. But then at a personal level, when it hits our own lives, when it hits our own heart, we need that compassionate understanding, that compassionate touch of your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes and shows us what is going on in our lives when we suffer. That it is not without purpose, but that you are accomplishing great things beyond our understanding. You are putting us on display before powers and principalities. You're putting us on display before family members and colleagues around us. You're putting us on display for the world to be able to say, look at my servant. See how great their love is that comes from me. Father God, thank you that nothing is unredeemable. Thank you that our suffering is not random, that Satan does not have the last word. You do. We give you praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.